We are returning this evening to our studies in the Beatitudes, and so I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5 once again, where we will once more read the first 12 verses. So Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, just in that last reference to the prophets who were before us, um, and in singing and reading earlier tonight about your word and the value of it, uh, God, we're reminded that we're not the first people to open to this passage. Uh, We're not the first to need to hear what Jesus says in these Beatitudes. And we're not the first who will get help from this passage. God, for century upon century, you've been feeding your people from your word. And we pray that you would do it once more tonight. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can a great man be a good man? Some of you have seen that question flash across your screen in recent days as the tagline for the new film, Steve Jobs. Can a great man be a good man? In other words, can a man like Steve Jobs, former CEO and co-founder of Apple Computers, and one of the most successful men of our generation, or of any generation for that matter, can a man like that, who has made it to the very pinnacle of the ladder of success, also be the kind of man who treats his employees well and who really cares for his children and who is truly good to his wife? Can a great man be a good man? Now, I confess I have not seen the movie, and even if I had, I wouldn't even begin to pretend that I knew enough about the actual facts of Steve Jobs' life to assess whether the movie is indeed accurate or whether such a question is really a fair one in his case. I don't know whether Steve Jobs was a good man or not. But the fact that that question is being asked, can a great man be a good man, the fact that that question is being asked probably reveals that our culture may not always be so sure that the answer can be yes. Because it does seem, does it not, that our culture has accepted as a basic norm 
that in order to reach the top of the mountain, in order to be successful, in order to be elite, in order to be in the top 1% of the top 1%, in order to achieve at the highest level, you generally have to be just a little bit cocky, self-assertive, aggressive, forceful, controlling, all of which traits seem often to come fully equipped with a fair amount of unkindness toward other people as well. That's the way our culture often thinks. And so while we might not say it quite so crassly, our cultural beatitudes might read something like, Blessed are those who do not suffer fools, for they will run the company. Blessed are those with swagger, for they will win the trophy. Blessed are the brash, for they will be elected to public office. Blessed are those who take no prisoners, for they will conquer the world. Now, I know many of us could give examples of how that's not always the case. Many of us could point to examples of people who are humble and meek and self-effacing and gentle and yet who've succeeded at the very highest level. But as a general rule, there may be good reasons latent in the soil of our American values why we ask a question like, can a great man be a good man? Because it's very often true in Hollywood and in the real world as well that the self-assertive and the cold-blooded are the ones who run things and who achieve and who make it to the tops of the totem poles. In short, the gentle do not usually conquer the earth. And yet Jesus does say here in verse 5 that the gentle shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, as the King James Version puts it, for they shall inherit the earth. And it sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because it's not what we see in many real-life situations, nor is it what Hollywood tends to portray to us. We do not often see the meek at the very top of life's dogpile, do we? We do not see the gentle usually conquering the world. But Jesus does say that such people, those who are made gentle by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, such people, though they will not conquer the earth, shall indeed inherit the earth. And there is a difference between the two, isn't there? There is a difference between conquering the earth and inheriting the earth. A difference which clues us in, it seems to me, on the fact that the inheritance Jesus is speaking of here is not to be granted primarily in this life. It may often be that in this life, it will be the assertive, the aggressive, the controlling, and the pushy who will conquer and who will control the great goings-on on planet Earth. But this planet Earth is not the only version of the operating system that God has worked on. We're living, of course, on planet Earth 1.0, which operated perfectly until Adam and Eve introduced a virus into it, a deadly one at that. And the people who often seem best able to manipulate the corrupted operating system that is Earth 1.0 are those who've learned to use the virus to their own advantage. In other words, in this sinful world, it's often those who know how to use sinful traits to their own advantage, who are able to conquer the world. But for the meek, for those who, by the power of Christ, swim upstream, for those who, by grace, are not content to stick with the 1.0 version, God is preparing a permanent upgrade. 
planet Earth 2.0, we might call it. According to his promise, the Apostle Peter reminds us we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this new earth will not be hacked into by the aggressive or the crafty, but granted as a free upgrade to those who are willing to wait for it. The new earth, the earth that Jesus is speaking of primarily in this third beatitude, will not be conquered, it will be bequeathed. It will not be taken by force, but granted as a gift, as an inheritance, not as spoils to the victors. And it will be granted, Jesus says very specifically, to the gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Primarily, I think he means the earth as it will be when he returns again. And so we need to do some thinking tonight about what it means to be gentle. We all probably have some idea of what gentleness means. Dictionary.com describes the word gentle as follows. Kindly, amiable, not severe, rough, or violent, mild. Synonyms, according to thesaurus.com, include considerate, humane, soft, tender. And then we can also think of correlative qualities that usually accompany gentleness. Traits like patience, compassion, love, tact, and a lack of self-importance. All all these words, uh, when we sort of put the puzzle pieces together, help us wrap our minds around this praiseworthy characteristic of gentleness. And yet, they don't really sum it up completely, do they? Gentleness, like many other human traits, is perhaps best understood not merely by assembling the bare bones of synonyms and definitions, but rather when the definition and the bare bones are fleshed out by a real-life example. And so for you, the definition of gentleness may begin to seed itself in your mind when you recall maybe how your mother used to tend to you when you were sick. Or when you think about the soft-spokenness of your grandfather, or when you think about an instance in your life when someone offered you great mercy and forgiveness after you'd really blown it. Indeed, we could go around the room tonight, each of us sharing some personal portrait of gentleness that's been painted for us in our own life's history. I think, for instance, about the father of one of my friends who is a fairly successful banker and who is surely a man of great character and resolve and strength, but whom I always encountered as simply kindly and unselfconscious and interested in me and not himself and overtly thankful. You might think in terms of a biblical figure like Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. James and John, at least early on in their lives, were sons of thunder. But Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And Alistair Begg, you you should go listen to it, has a wonderful sermon on Barnabas by that same title, Son of Encouragement, in which he points out a number of things. First of all, that when Saul, later we know him as Paul, was converted to Christ from his background as a persecutor of the church, And when the church at Jerusalem closed the door in his face because they were afraid of this former persecutor, Begg points out it was Barnabas 
in Acts chapter 9 who found it in his heart to welcome this unlikely new convert. And then he also points out from Acts 11 how that when word came to Jerusalem about another set of unlikely converts in Antioch, a group of Gentiles of all things, the church sent Barnabas to research this phenomenon and how Barnabas rejoiced at these pagans coming into the family of God. And then you may remember how young Mark got homesick on the mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, and he deserted them. And Paul was very upset about it. And it was Barnabas who was gentle and willing to give him a second chance. And here in the face of Barnabas is another picture, one which surely John Mark never forgot of Christian gentleness. Or if I can borrow one more time from the Civil War, I think of the way Ulysses S. Grant received Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox, as I saw it and heard it described in Ken Burns' documentary recently. Meeting Lee in a parlor and making small talk with him and really sort of beating around the bush a little bit because he was almost uh, wanting to avoid having to discuss with the great Southern gentleman and general, general the reality that he had been defeated. And then when they finally got down to it, he provided Lee's men, starving men, with food rations. And when Lee left on his horse, Grant prevented his own men from cheering their victory as the man rode away from the scene. Now, these men were not always gentle, of course, and there's much in their behavior and in that war to be decried. But here is a great show of meekness by the Yankee general, rendered all the more impressive and chivalrous when we realize that he was such a fierce warrior. And here's another picture from the freeze frame, this time of the life of a general, of what it means to be gentle. And it reminds us, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not inability to conquer. Gentleness is not impotence to get one's way by force, but it is rather a heartbeat that chooses mercy over might, tenderness over strength, kindness Overpower. And then when I think of gentleness, I think also because of uh, another excellent resource that you should listen to, John Piper's biographical message on him. I think of John Newton, the former slave trader turned pastor who wrote the song that we just finished singing, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, and most famously he wrote Amazing Grace. And Piper entitles the bio of John Newton, The Tough Roots of His Habitual Tenderness. The Tough Roots of His Habitual Tenderness. And it would be worth your listening to it at DesiringGod.org. Not least because, wouldn't it be marvelous if that is what somebody wrote about you? That you were characterized by habitual tenderness or gentleness, or meekness, to use the word from our passage tonight. And Piper goes on to describe Newton's tenderness to an ungodly liberal pastor in a neighboring town, which tenderness God used to eventually win that man over to a lively faith in Jesus, and he eventually replaced John Newton in his own pulpit when Newton moved to London. And he also describes Newton's famous and gentle ministry to the mentally ill poet and hymn writer, William Cooper, whom some of you will know. 
And then Piper also mentions a fairly famous letter which Newton wrote to a friend who was about to go to the press with some critique of a fellow minister who was engaged in teaching error. And while Newton agreed with his friend as to the truth over which the swords were being drawn, he's gravely concerned that his friend will engage in the battle with a hot head and a lack of gentleness. And so he writes his friend a letter, which is at one and the same time both a marvelous exhortation of what gentleness should look like in his friend, and it's also a splendid show of Newton's own gentleness to his friend as he offers him some warning about his hot-headedness. And let me just read you a portion of this gentle letter whose subject is gentleness, and I think it will help us, again, to fill out our picture of what it means to be gentle. Dear Sir, Newton says, As you are likely to be engaged in controversy, and your love of truth is joined with a natural warmth of temper, my friendship makes me solicitous on your behalf. You are of the strongest side, for truth is great and must prevail, so that a person of abilities inferior to yours might take the field with a confidence of victory. I am not, therefore, anxious for the event of the battle, but I would have you more than a conqueror, and to triumph not only over your adversary but over yourself. If you cannot be vanquished, you may be wounded. To preserve you from such wounds as might give you cause of weeping over your conquests, I would present you with some considerations which, if duly attended to, will do you the service of a great coat of mail. As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him, and such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are happy or to be happy in Christ forever. But if you look upon him as an unconverted person in a state of enmity against God and his grace, he is more a proper object of your compassion than of your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does, but you know who has made you to differ. If God in his sovereign pleasure had so appointed, you might have been as he is now, and he instead of you might have been set for the defense of the gospel. You were both equally blind by nature. If you attend to this, you will not reproach or hate him, because the Lord has been pleased to open your eyes and not his. Of all people who engage in controversy, we who are called Calvinists are most expressly bound by our own principles to the exercise of gentleness and moderation. If indeed they who differ from us have a power of changing themselves, if they can open their own eyes, but if we believe the very contrary to this, our part is not to strive but in meekness to instruct those who oppose, if peradventure God will give them repentance to the acknowledgement 
of the truth. We'll stop there. You can read the whole letter online. Just Google John Newton's letter on controversy. What I'm trying to achieve by reading you that letter where he exhorts gentleness in controversy and what I'm trying to achieve by showing you the great warrior Grant showing gentleness at the end of the war and by talking to you about my friend's father and by presenting you with the portrait of Barnabas, recalling to your mind your own recollections of people who have been gentle in your life is all to try and imprint upon your minds a portrait of what it really looks like to be what Jesus calls us to be here in Matthew 5, 5. Gentleness is not the same as weakness. It's not the same as inability or diffidence or reservation concerning truth, but rather gentleness is, to borrow from Piper in another context, to have convictions of steel wrapped in the velvet of tender interaction with your fellow man. And of course, nowhere do we see that reality more profoundly than in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is called in the fifth chapter of Revelation both the lion that is from the tribe of Judah and yet also the lamb that was slain. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, Jesus told his disciples. And he is coming someday with a sword in his mouth, as it were, to execute judgments on his enemies. And yet in the Gospels, we find Jesus with little children sitting on his knee and with his hand laid on the head of a leper leper, and with a prostitute kissing his feet and with no stone in his hand for the woman caught in adultery. A man with the strength of steel and well beyond, draped in the velvet of gentleness so that he was approachable and loved by sinners and even by children. And I wonder if you and I approximate to the Savior in this regard. Gentleness doesn't mean that there's never a time for turning over tables or calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And we do well to see that in the example of Jesus too, especially those of us who, by the temerity of our natures, would prefer to be all velvet and no steel. But many of us err in just the opposite direction. Many of us have too much of a spirit of the age which applauds those who throw their weight around and enforce their will upon others and have a way of just getting what they want and who sacrifice goodness on the altar of greatness. Jesus was both, and while it may be his will that a very few of his people be great, it is certainly his will that all of us be good. And so we need to think tonight about the various relationships in our lives and ask whether or not we are very much like Jesus in this matter of gentleness. So do that with me for a moment. Let's just begin in the innermost relational circle with your spouse, those of you who are married. Men, are you gentle with your wife? Do you rule her with a rod of iron, or you do, do you gently lead her like a nursing you? Is she afraid of you when she makes a mistake? Afraid to tell you? Or does she run to you because she knows you will be the one to comfort her? And wives, are you meek with your husbands? Do you submit to their leadership gracefully? or with protests and rolled eyes and loud sighs and turned backs and walking out of the room in such a way as to let them know that you think they're being a fool? 
Would your husband describe you as having what Peter calls the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit? Or when there's a conversation to be had, a difficult conversation to be had, does he have to brace himself for battle? And then expand the circle out to the rest of your household, your children, your parents, your siblings, your housemates. How do they view you? Have you, by your volatility and intractableness, covered the floors of your home with eggshells so that any time you're in a certain mood, your family just all knows we better tread very lightly today? When you don't get your way or when someone in the home blows it, do you rant and rave or give cold glares across the room or revert to the drill sergeant mode? Or are you gentle? You could ask the same things about how things go in the classroom or at work too, couldn't we? Then let me ask you about your level of gentleness when of necessity you have occasion to correct or confront another person as Newton is dealing with in that letter. Gentleness doesn't entail that you refrain from correction or from confronting sin, but it does dictate that you do not engage in these things after the manner of the flesh. So let me ask you, are you eager to confront other people? It's usually not a good sign. And when you do have to confront someone about their sin, do you think at all about how to do so tactfully? Or do you just charge in like a bull in a china shop, more eager to clear your conscience and get whatever it is off of your chest than really to be helpful to that other person. In all these things, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. There's a right way to lead your wife and even to be firm in your leadership when necessary. But then, men, there's also a wrong way that many of us know all too well, me included. There's a right way, ladies, to disagree with your husband, even to voice your concerns, but there's also a very wrong way to do that as well, that our culture treats as all too normal and even praiseworthy. And there are right ways and wrong ways to deal with family disputes and to discipline your children and to sort through conflicts in the office or in the classroom and to confront sin and to do just about anything else under the sun. And one of the wrong ways, one of the areas in which we so often fall foul, some of us, is in this simple matter of gentleness and so I urge you tonight to think about where it is that you might fall foul and where you need to repent and where you need the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from the sins of harshness tactlessness rudeness grouchiness impatience petulance and so on And here's good news. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In other words, if we will be honest about our sin and confess it and repent of it, both our human relationships will be better, at least within the church, and the blood of Christ will cleanse the stains of sin that keep us from God. And so I urge you to walk in the light, even tonight. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so some of us have some confessing to do in this realm of gentleness. Now, 
As we work our way toward a close, I want us to spend a few last minutes thinking about where this meekness comes from and how we can cultivate it. Because while we must confess and seek forgiveness for those times when we fail in this regard, true repentance doesn't stop with merely seeking to be forgiven. It also encompasses a sincere desire to change. And so we need to think about, before we finish, where that change comes from and what are the wellsprings of true Christian gentleness. And let's first of all say that Jesus is here talking about Christian gentleness. He's not talking just about that natural meekness that some people possess by dint of their bodily chemistry or parental upbringing. Many people are quite naturally gentle, And yet we know that how gentle soever they may be, they will not inherit the new earth. They will not reign with Christ in eternity if they've not been converted to him out of their sins. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we don't inherit eternity. We don't inherit the new earth by dint of any natural meekness or kindness that we were born with or brought up in. If that were the case, Christ died needlessly, right? If we can get to heaven and to eternity by virtue of being gentle and kind or by any other virtue that's natural to us, then the cross is emptied of all of its importance. And Christ died needlessly for a group of people who may just as well well have saved themselves. And that without so much blood and gore. So when Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, he's not advocating work salvation. He's not saying that all those kindly people that you know are going to heaven on account of their kindness, regardless of whether they're ever converted to faith in himself. Rather, what Jesus is acknowledging here is that one of the characteristics of those who have been born from above, of those who have been brought into Christ's kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit, one of the characteristics of a true disciple of Jesus will be a growing gentleness of disposition. And the point of this verse then is that if you have been made gentle by Christ, then you are blessed because while such meekness may not conquer the world or count for anything in the eyes of your neighbors, it will inherit the earth when Jesus comes again. So this verse is not a recipe for how to achieve eternal life. Rather, it's just a brush of fresh air. It is a a dose of tonic for those who have begun to follow Jesus and begun to walk in meekness and who may sometimes feel like it's getting them nowhere fast in this life. Following Jesus is not, in the end, a losing proposition. Becoming meek like Christ is not a death knell to eternal happiness. It's simply a deferment. By following Jesus, walking in the path of his meekness, you're simply choosing to inherit the new earth rather than trying to conquer the old one. Now that was a little bit of a sidebar from our answer to the question where our gentleness comes from. The gentleness that Jesus is talking about comes not merely from our genes, not merely from our upbringing, but from the new life that only Christ can place within us. The gentleness of Matthew 5 5 is given us in seed form when we are born again by the Spirit of God. And so it's not merely a natural quality, but a spiritual one, one which may dovetail with natural meekness or which may override a natural aggression and pride. But either way, the meekness of this verse comes 
from Christ. And not only does meekness come from Christ, but it is cultivated and deepened and fed in our lives when we continually look to this Christ in repentance and in faith. When we continually look to Jesus in repentance and faith, that's when we grow in meekness. Think of it like this, first of all. What effect does it have on your soul when you truly repent of your sin? When you truly hate what you just did and hate the indwelling sin nature from which it sprang, and when you have a genuine desire to be different, what effect does that have on your soul? Does it not tend you toward greater gentleness? When you remember again just how corrupt and rotten and twisted you are without Christ, does that not tend in your heart to give you a little more patience with other people who are in the same boat with you? True repentance leads to gentleness, and all the more so because on the flip side of your repentance, you do not only turn away from sin, but you turn to Christ in faith. And when you turn to him in repentance and faith like that, he is gentle with you, isn't he? He does not berate you. He welcomes you. And this kindness, this meekness that Christ shows us in the gospel, as Newton pointed out to his friend, should bend our hearts to grant the same kindness and meekness to others. And so gentleness is cultivated in the regular Christian pattern of continuing repentance for our sin and continual fleeing to Christ for his mercy. And those things are to be a continual pattern in our lives, incidentally. We don't just repent once, and we don't just believe in Jesus once. We're continually repenting and continually believing on Christ. And one of the glorious byproducts of that ongoing pattern is that it humbles us and reminds us of how much gentleness we need and how much Christ has shown gentleness to us, which cannot help if we follow this pattern, but move us to show the same gentleness toward the bumblers and the sinners in our own lives. Indeed, if you find yourself stagnant in this matter of meekness, it may be that you've become stagnant in the matters of confession and repentance and daily reliance upon the shed blood of Jesus as your only hope of mercy. So gentleness is cultivated in looking to Christ daily in repentance and faith. It's also cultivated simply by looking to Christ in his example as we touched on a little while ago. Look at Jesus with his children, with the children on his knee. Not too busy, even for the wee ones. Look at him with his hand on the head of the leper. The first clean person to touch that man in who knows how long. Look at him in the presence of sinners, accepting a prostitute's worship going to the home of Zacchaeus for afternoon tea, lifting up the head of the woman caught in adultery. And if you really know him, you will not be able to help when you look at him to want to be like him in this matter of gentleness. Now, Southerner though I am, I was genuinely moved to admiration by the retelling of General Grant's kindness and civility to General Lee at Appomattox. But when I opened the four Gospels, 
I read of such compassion, of such nobility, of such graciousness and goodness and gentleness over and over and over again in the story of our Lord on almost every single page. And I realize that he is showing that gentleness to me all the time. Not rubbing my nose in the fact of my failure. Providing me rations in spite of it. And welcome me back into his eternal country though I live so long as a rebel against it. And here's the wellspring of whatever gentleness I'm enabled to show to others. And here's your wellspring too. We all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. When you behold the glory of the Lord Jesus you are transformed into the same image. When you behold the meekness of the Lord Jesus, you are transformed in the same glorious meekness. And when we look to Christ like this, not only are we changed into his image now, but someday we will awake in eternity with his meek likeness permanently stamped upon our souls. And when we inherit the new earth, we will know that inheriting the earth rather than conquering the earth, was well worth the wait. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth.